The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 13 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC13. This is Secret Church 13, Episode 3. So that leads us to the intermediate state. So what happens the moment we die? Not according to four or seven-year-old boys, but according to God. 2 Corinthians 5 gives us an answer to that question. Saying, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us a spirit. The spirit is a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So that text leads us into a discussion of what's commonly referred to as the intermediate state, a term used to describe the condition of people between their bodily death and their bodily resurrection. So we're going to talk in a few minutes about a day that's coming in the future when our bodies will be resurrected with Christ. But we know that when somebody dies in this world, we bury their bodies in the ground. So where is their soul? Where are they? And what are they doing? Many... If, if not all of us, if at some point buried a friend or a family member. So where is that person now? And what is that person doing? What does the Bible say about these things? So follow with me. Revelation 6 gives us a picture of people who were slain, specifically persecuted and killed here, in the world for their faith. And Revelation pictures them around the throne of God, crying out to God. Listen to Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer, though the number of their fellow servants and the brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So let's, let's take some notes from this. First, notice, and remember, we've already talked about this. All people possess both body and a soul, all of us have a body and a soul. And when we die, our bodies are buried, Ecclesiastes 12. But at the same time, when we die, our souls persist. Stephen was about to die. He cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then his body stopped breathing. So all people possess both a body and a soul. And one day, our bodies will be resurrected and reunited with our souls. Jesus talks in John 5 about a resurrection to come. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about a bodily resurrection to come. And this is key. So follow this. When we think about that moment of death, and particularly people we love who've trusted in Christ, going to be with God, we need to realize that the story is still not over for them. The Bible teaches there's still a day coming in the future when they will experience a full, final, physical resurrection of their bodies, a bodily reuniting with their souls. That's why this time between now and the final resurrection is called an intermediate state because it's not intended to last there's still more to come. And that's our ultimate hope. When I'm talking with somebody who's lost a loved one, who knew Christ, I'm going to tell that person their loved one is with God spiritually. We're about to see that. But I'm also going to tell them that that loved one's story is still not over. One day their body is going to be physically resurrected. 
One day their soul will be reunited with their body to enjoy God in the completion of their salvation. So there's more to come in the future. So we'll, we'll get to that. But what happens in this intermediate state? Some questions. What happens at the moment of death? Well, clearly, according to passages like Luke 23, Jesus' words, the thief on the cross, as well as what we've already seen in Philippians, or Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians 5, Hebrews 12, at the moment of death, the souls of believers immediately enter the presence of God. There's no biblical question about that. Not only that, but at the moment of death, the souls of unbelievers immediately experience the punishment of God. That's clear in the story Jesus told about the rich man Lazarus in Luke 16. Now, at this point, people ask the question, what about purgatory? According to Catholicism, purgatory is the place where believers' souls go to be further purified from sin prior to admission into heaven. In other words, some people go to purgatory in order to pay a remaining price for their sins and experience final purification for their sins. This doctrine is taught in 2 Maccabees 12. You get to the end there. I'll just read it. Judas Maccabeus took a collection, man by man, to the Mount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking into account the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, follow this, he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. So here, it's clear that it's right and good to pray for the dead, even to make atonement for the dead, offerings from the dead, and Catholicism here, in order that they might del- those who are, who are in purgatory might be delivered from their sin. According to Catholicism, in purgatory, the penalty of venial sins, which means pardonable sins, can be removed by unconditional forgiveness from God, contrition, or works of penance by souls in purgatory. In addition, souls in purgatory can be helped in that process of purification by saints on earth through their participation in mass, prayers, giving alms, and performing good works. This has been taught and defended in various church councils, which speak authoritatively for the Catholic Church throughout the history of the Catholic Church. So you've got Council of Florence. Now remember, these councils are authoritative on the same level in Catholicism as Scripture. So according to the Council of Florence, souls are cleansed by, the, by purgatorial pains after death. And in order that they may be rescued from these pains, they are benefited by the suffrages of the living faith, the sacrifice of the mass, prayers, alms, and other works of piety. So this is what Catholicism teaches. Well, what does Scripture have to say? Well, according to Scripture, and you'll notice in your study guide, there's a blank space there. Because Scripture doesn't talk about this. Nowhere does Jesus say anything about purgatory. And nowhere in the New Testament or Old Testament do you see purgatory. But where the Bible is silent about purgatory, the Bible is clear about salvation. We are saved from our sins by grace alone. By grace you've been saved. Through faith, it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of any works that no one may boast. The whole doctrine of purgatory teaches that there's some payment that we must dole out for our sins in order to be restored to God, which is a fundamental denial of the entire gospel in the first place. Any thought of atonement that we make for our sins before or after death undercuts the atonement that Christ alone can make for our sins. As a result, any teaching that posits a period of atonement for sins after death must be summarily renounced and rejected based on the gospel. We're saved from our sins by grace alone, through faith alone, not by our works, not in this life, not in our death. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The very doctrine of purgatory implies that Christ's death is not sufficient to cover our sins, that there's more need for covering after we die. And it's not true. Christ's death is sufficient to cover our sin, all of it. Christ's death is sufficient to save us from all of our sins in life and in death. 
Well, what about soul sleep? According to some believers who die, enter into a state of unconscious existence, and they stay unconscious until Christ returns, raises them to eternal life. So this would be a common belief among Seventh-day Adventists as well as Jehovah's Witnesses. And they believe this because, they say, after all, even Jesus describes death as sleep. Matthew 9, there's other instances in the New Testament where death is described as sleep. So what are we to do with these verses? Well, think about it. According to Scripture, sleep is clearly, clearly, indisputably, without question, a metaphor intended to depict the temporary nature of death for Christians. Look at what Jesus said about Lazarus in John 11. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that many was taking rest and sleep. Notice that Jesus doesn't say the soul of Lazarus is sleeping, nor does any other passage in Scripture even say that someone's soul is sleeping or even unconscious. The point Jesus is making is Lazarus is dead, only temporarily in that instance. And then you look in the rest of the Scripture and you see the believers in heaven are clearly not sleeping. Psalm 115 says that we bless the Lord for they, forever and ever. Moses and Elijah clearly not asleep in Matthew 17. Jesus told the thief on the cross, not today you're going to get a long nap, but today you're going to be with me in paradise. And then you got, you got the passage we already read from Revelation 6. You can't laugh. We got to keep going. Uh, we've already read from Revelation 6, which clearly shows believers awake in the presence of God, which then leads to the next question. Well, then if they're awake, then what are believers doing in the intermediate, but believers doing in the intermediate heaven? And Scripture doesn't give us a lot of specifics on this. And now remember, in questions like this, and in many questions we're going to look at tonight, the point of the Bible is not just to satisfy our curiosity about every question under the sun. That's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is to show us who God is, how we can know Him, be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the purpose of the Bible. But at the same time, we do have glimpses here and there that at least inform the way we think about these questions. So you put Revelation together, six together, with other passages in Revelation, as well as Hebrews, other parts of Scripture, we at least get some idea of what believers are doing in the intermediate heaven. What are the saints, our loved ones in Christ who have gone before us, what are they doing in this intermediate time? Scripture seems to indicate that they are worshiping. Hebrews 12 talks about when we gather together for worship on earth, we're joining together with a heavenly assembly around the throne, according to Hebrews and Revelation. In some sense, they are watching it seems they can at least to some extent see what's happening on earth. They surround us as a great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us. Even Luke 15 doesn't just say there's rejoicing by angels in heaven over sinners who repent, but there's rejoicing in heaven in the presence of angels over sinners who repent. Revelation 18 depicts an exhortation from the saints and apostles and prophets to, in heaven to rejoice as they watch what's taking place on earth. So they're in some sense worshiping, watching, and they're waiting. This is certainly the picture of the saints in Revelation 6. When you read that text, you can reasonably come to a number of conclusions. One, at the very least, these saints are clearly conscious of, conscious of who they are, who God is, what God's doing in the world. They are audibly loud, raising their voices. They're emotionally passionate. They are distinctly individual. This group of martyred saints, each given a robe, Revelation 6 says. They're completely unified, calling out with one voice. They're continually interceding. The picture here is them asking God to intervene on earth, to act on their behalf for His glory. They're praying for judgment upon persecutors who are attacking the church. They're interceding for suffering saints on earth. You think about it. If prayer is communication with God, then you would think that we'll pray more, not less, when our souls are actually united with God. 
As they intercede, they thirst for final justice. Their thirst for justice is truer and greater and deeper and more zealous than it ever was on earth. They long for full redemption and restoration, all of this. They know God's character more deeply. They love God's church more fully. See the references in Revelation 6 to their fellow servants, their brothers on earth, the familial tie there is there. And in the middle of all this, they're trusting God's promises in the present and they're anticipating God's plan for the future. They are living in anticipation of the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. This unfolding drama of redemption in the earth is playing out before them on center court, center stage, and they're worshiping, watching, and waiting for the day when a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, will cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So then, bring this back down then to us. Ask the question, how then should we view our own death? Well, we've already discussed, it depends on who we are. All who follow Christ should anticipate death with confidence. The psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Christian, we do not fear death. We, we anticipate death because we know that nothing will separate us from the love of God, Romans 8. The death is better by far, Philippians 1.23, because the one who has the power of death has been destroyed, Hebrews 2.14. On the other hand, all who do not follow Christ should fear death with trepidation. Fear the day when your separation from God will become an eternal reality. Luke 16 gives a chilling picture of a rich man who had it all in this world but died apart from Christ, and he uses the word torment over and over again. For all who do not follow Christ, fear death with trepidation. How should we view our own death, and then how should we view others' death? And this is so key. Russell Moore said at a funeral, the church is perhaps at its most theological. So how should we view the death of non-Christians? And this is my encouragement to us. In light of all we've seen in God's word, the death of non-Christians. First, view the death of non-Christians with biblical honesty. This is so key because it is so common in our day to go to funerals. Even here, so I'm, I'm in the middle of the religious South, and no matter how somebody has lived, no matter how they have spurned Christ with the way they live their life, all of a sudden you get to a funeral around here, and it seems like everybody just like that becomes a universalist. And everybody's assuming this person's okay. And it's not true. Those who die without Christ immediately experience the punishment of God. So view the death of non-Christians with biblical honesty. Now at the same time, obviously, no one but God ultimately knows the state of a person's heart. So we view the death of non-Christians with personal humility, knowing that like the thief on the cross in the last moments of a person's life, maybe, maybe they trusted in Christ. Even in their last minutes, they trusted in Christ. View the death of non-Christians with appropriate honor. Obviously, in no way do we ever denigrate somebody in their death. Even the worst of people are, are a reflection created, and we've already seen created precious and valuable in the sight of God. See David's example of this in talking about Saul's death in 2 Samuel. So we view their death with appropriate honor and with heartbreaking anguish over the death of a sinner separated from God. The kind of anguish we see in Romans 9. And ultimately, we view the death of non-Christians with life-giving resolve to spend our lives urgently spreading this gospel to others like them before it is too late. May the death of non-Christians be a wake-up call in our lives. Hear these words from Jim Elliott, himself martyred by men he was trying to reach with the gospel. He said, surely those who know the great passionate heart of Jehovah must deny their own loves to share in the expression of his. Consider, here's how he pictured it. The call from the throne above, go ye. From round about, come over and help us. And even the call from the damned souls below, send Lazarus to my brothers, this is from Luke 16, that they may come not to this place. Impelled then by these voices, I dare not stay home while Kichwa's perished, who was going to reach. 
What if the, so what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. American believers have sold their lives to the service of mammon, and God has his rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to the spirit, spirit of Laodicea. God, wake us up with a call from above, the call from around us, and even the call from damned souls below. Send somebody to my friends and family. And then how should we view the death of Christians? And the Bible encourages us to view the death of Christian brothers and sisters with profound sorrow. So don't miss or misunderstand this. To have confidence in the gospel does not mean that we are glibly happy when a brother or sister in Christ dies. No, we are profoundly sorrowful. And we weep just as Jesus wept, knowing that death is a result of sin in a fallen world. And we hate sin. We hate death. At the same time, we view their death with abiding joy because this brother or sister knew the king who conquered death. And even though they died, John eleven twenty five, 25, even now they live. So in this strange paradox of affections, we grieve with joy. It was said by the apologist Aristides in 125 AD, if any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body with songs and thanksgivings as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. We view the death of Christians with sincere worship to God. Our weeping is mixed with worship. Just like it was in David's life when his child died, Job's life when his children died, we weep in worship. We view the death of Christians with sincere worship to God and unshakable hope, with unshakable hope in God. Before others, because we know this world is not all there is. We grieve with hope. And this is our hope. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. You may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.